Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest is actually born and raised in Alaska, of all places. He originally worked in oil fields, doing hard work. And then uh, he realized he's actually a creative person at heart. And he's been a writer and a novelist. And then transitioned into the creative world of digital marketing. Spent the past decade as a content marketing expert. He's currently the director of marketing at Empire Flippers, which is the number one created marketplace for buying and selling online businesses. And he's been there for the past six years, who is actually employee number four. So everybody meet my guest, Greg Elfring. So welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks for having me, Nick. Hopefully, uh, you know, we'll be able to add some value here for the audience. Oh, yeah. I'm sure people will be extremely interested because everybody's uh, dream is to sell their business and you're going to tell them all about how that plays out. So tell me something you're doing really well right now. Uh, what we're doing really right. Uh, sorry. What we're doing really well right now is we're helping protect entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs when they come to their exit. So when you say protect, what does that mean exactly? Who oh, you, you know, uh, have first of all, few bodyguards. <laughs> So who are you protecting them from? I mean, are they under threat, these sellers, that they don't know about? So there, there is an uh, 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 interesting notion of a threat there. So what you said there is true. Most entrepreneurs want to sell, right? But most entrepreneurs don't often sell businesses. So they are at a disadvantage of, say, buyers who do buy businesses a lot of the times who are much savvier than them. So one of the things we do is protect our sellers who spent you know several years sometimes building this huge asset when it comes to the actual sales process because for most entrepreneurs that's not something they're doing every day right and you know no wonder that they aren't exactly the most skilled at it they just don't have the reps in so that's what we at empire flippers does we help protect that seller to get that super meaningful exit and you know, I've seen, uh, you know, like you said, six years, I've helped create 70 millionaires at the moment of their exit. Like, it can be truly meaningful, but that doesn't mean there isn't traps to watch out for, right? Yeah. So actually, I should have said to you, uh, so I should say what you should have told me that what you do really well is we create millionaires, right? So that's what you're doing. <laughs> so, uh, so after the protection comes the millionaire part. So uh, tell me, give me an example of something that happened in your case. So where, uh, so I mean, we all know business, you know, because when you build a business, you, be, you become business savvy, maybe not at the beginning, but as you do things, you become savvy. So why why do I need you? If I if I have a good business and somebody's interested, I'm gonna negotiate, right? So I mean we know how to negotiate. So why do I need you? And give me an example of 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 that, your your value here. Sure, sure. First off, though, I'm going to have to steal that line. Uh I thought you just said it'll be creating millionaires from an ex-guru style ad that I do on YouTube or something. I have to use that. Um, but in terms of what you said, you're right, right? Like FBA entrepreneurs, you're negotiating with suppliers, but with vendors, all sorts of different things. But the issue comes down as it often does to the details of the situation, right? This is like, when you go and sell a business, 60 to 80% of your net worth is often in that business. Like sometimes even more, right? It could be a hundred percent of your net worth. And there is a lot of emotions riding on the line here. In fact, there's a whole thing I, I teach sellers to kind of disabuse themselves of, which I call emotional equity, which is basically you overvalue your business is a very common mistake that sellers make uh, because of their emotional value into the business. They don't use the same kind of like pragmatic calculus that a buyer is going to look at. And that creates all the sorts of misalignment that usually leads to a really bad situation for a seller. So there's that aspect. There's all these details and nuances that, a seller may not realize. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. So we had a, a, a buyer looking at buying, I think it was a $2.3 million FBA business. 
And this was the, the seller's first business. It's huge. They're like really knocking it out of the park, right? Very lean team as often these uh, type of businesses are with just, you know, the founder and maybe a few assistants really running the whole ship. Um, so they got the offer. They got an amazing earnout offer uh, in their in their eyes because it gave them so much upside. Like, yeah, okay, I'm going to get like 1.7 million upfront, but the upside potential of this earnout is huge. Of course, I'm going to say yes. But the thing is, because of their like a mixture of emotions, wanting to get the deal done, the excitement, they didn't realize that that buyer had made that earnout for them to fail. The buyer used that as a way to mitigate their own capital because they knew that business had no way of doing this, no way of achieving this earnout. But the seller didn't because it was all dressed up in the, all the magical M&A talk and legalese, all that kind of stuff that they're not as used to. So we, in that example, coached that seller, you should really not take this deal. And we spelled it out to them, put it in layman's terms. They're like, oh, oh, <laughs> this is way worse that they made us out. Like, of course, they're using this as a way to save money. And uh, because you're not as familiar with this space, you would have been exploited in that sense. So that that's an example of something we would help with. So, uh, so th that means that this is the fine print or the terms that you are more familiar with that you are able to interpret. Is that is that what's going on in that situation? So in this in this example, is the terms not the fine print? Of course, fine print you got to watch out for as well. Um, but it's just it's it's just uh, not like. It's just not something that the entrepreneur is doing every day. Like if a supplier, for example, uh, told you, I, I'm not familiar with suppliers. I don't have examples of this, but say a supplier told you like, look, I'll give you product X for this amount with this amount of terms. Most FBA entrepreneurs are worth their salt. They understand the situation with enough nuance to know whether or not that supplier is one telling the truth, giving them a good deal. Uh, if everything's above the board or not, or if something's like more expensive than it should be, all that kind of stuff, because they're familiar with it. They're doing it all the time. But when it comes to selling a business, that's usually not the case. So let's let's talk about how these things actually play out in your experience. What What is the trend? So let's say that I have an FBA business and it's doing, I don't know, $3 million a year. Mm -hmm. And and let's let's assume that that my business is valued $2 million. Okay, it's agreed. You know, people agree, buyer agreed, seller agreed. I'm going to get $2 million. So how often does the buyer come along and says, here is your check for $2 million. Thank you very much. Now I own the business. <laughs> what is the percentage of that happening? <laughs> it's very low. <laughs> so... Uh, so th this, is, this is another thing uh, that's quite fascinating in the industry. So I imagine most of your audience is familiar with the term aggregators at this point. If they've been around, they're probably getting hit up all the time by them. Uh, and it's very common for these aggregators to, say, do private outreach and be what you just said, like this buyer that comes along, I'm going to give you $2 million. Uh, and they'll get you into what is known as a letter of intent or LOI. And then they just beat you down from there. <laughs> like the $2 million, like, that's the starting salvo. Like, we'll give you the $2 million after we do this LI and complete our due diligence. But wait, what's all this? And then that's when the real negotiations typically begin. So um, there are buyers out there, of course, who are not like that. Uh, not all aggregators are like what I just mentioned there. But uh, it, so it can happen. But one of the other things to watch out for is say that that uh, person did just come up to you, right? Like, here's that $2 million, Nick. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. I just became a millionaire. There is a very strong chance that if they gave you the money that way, you way undersold your business. <laughs> so they're like, of course, I'll give you this $2 million or $4 million asset, which is another issue that sellers often don't know how to value their business very well. Just again, it just comes down to lack of knowledge, not doing it, right? Oh, so, so I just heard you say something very interesting. I didn't actually think about it. And if I think about it, of course, it's, it's uh, obvious. So even if somebody says, I love your business, I think it's worth X, we both agree, and, and then here is your check. That's actually a deal you should not take. That's what you're saying. It, it often is. Now, not in every situation. There are situations where that totally makes sense to do, but that it often is that situation. If the aggregator or the, uh, especially in the seven-figure range, if they're just giving you what you want, it's very unlikely that you're selling it for the maximum amount of price because usually there's going to be some fight 
uh, for what you want. And it usually happens in the LOI stage, which we see quite often with people do private deals or that's usually where the deal falls apart. Um, but yeah, so if someone just gives you that money, usually it's because you're underselling and that kind of uh, dovetails nicely into another thing next. So, uh, another very common thing that sellers fall for if they don't use a broker is let's say, uh, and this is, this is a real story. So this guy that I know, he's a, a seven figure seller. He has a business, he gets offered $1.4 million. And the aggregator is like, you have three days to accept this offer. And that's very common where they will do this like scarcity urgency thing because it's marketing, right? Like it's good marketing. Like you got one deal, you got to act now, right? And you're like, for most entrepreneurs, like, oh, wow, I'm going to be a millionaire. You know, all of the dudes say yes, like the, you know, their eyes are seeing dollar signs, right? Uh, so this seller in particular, he was calm about it, stoic and came to us for a second opinion. And we looked at it like, ah, you could sell for that or you could sell it for a lot more. And so he came to us and we sold that same business for 2.1 million with 1.8 million upfront. So just the upfront amount alone, he got an extra $400,000 on it. And uh, it, it's a fascinating thing to watch the, these different uh, marketing psychology things that play here. Cause like when an entrepreneur goes to sell their business, they often take off their own copywriter hat and just kind of like throw it in the trash. And they're not, they're not thinking in the sense of like what they would be thinking on their like Amazon PVC, like getting their ideal customer profile, all this stuff, they just kind of throw it all, all the windows. So uh, it's fascinating to see that kind of stuff play out and, and to help entrepreneurs to avoid it, of course. Yeah, so what I'm, what I'm hearing really is the brokers bring a lot of advantage. First of all, they protect you from yourself, right? So <laughs> you, they, you take out the emotional component, uh, whether it's the deal or the company or whatever. And the second thing is you really, and this is what you do every day. So you, you are intimately familiar with value, valuations that can be achieved for sellers. And, and at the same time, you make sure that the sale goes through in a way that will be in the best interest of the seller, so to speak, uh, with the terms and everything. So when you put all these things together obviously this is a foreign territory for somebody who builds a business just you know operating it negotiating whatever the case is. okay so <clears throat> what i want to do is i want to actually really dissect a deal because this is sure uh, this is something that people don't know and you can't really figure this out it would be too expensive if you do it you know like, like <laughs> it could be expensive so it yeah. would be useful so <laughs> Let's uh, let's dissect how a deal plays out. So let's say that somebody is looking to sell, and and there is a buyer. So walk us through how that plays out and what are ideal terms. So give us your recommendations of what they should be doing, what they should be looking at, and then also set some expectations of what they can expect. Sure. So. It does kind of change the process based on how big or small your business is. So a quick example, if your valuation is say underneath $200,000, especially underneath $100,000, a really small business, right? That's basically all cash deals. You really shouldn't be accepting anything but all cash because there's so many cash buyers in that space. It doesn't make sense. Um, if you're in the $500,000 to $1 million range, that is typically going to be the hardest uh, pricing tier to sell in because it's just slightly too small from private equity and aggregators and ultra high net worth individuals to come in where it makes sense. And it's just slightly too big for a lot of bootstrap entrepreneurs. Like, let's just throw 700K at this thing because uh, that usually represents a huge amount of their wealth as a bootstrap entrepreneur, right? So that tends to be the hardest one. So you have to go in with more flexible expectations. Now, when you get above seven figures, uh, that's when things start getting a little bit more complicated because that's when you start getting more of the actual M&A savvy kind of buyers starting to enter into the field more. They exist at other levels too, but this is where their bread and butter is, like seven and eight figure businesses. Um, so when you're looking at that, like you can wager like 80, 85% upfront. So, uh, you know, on a $2 million deal, you get like 85% uh, or 80% upfront. And then the majority uh, of the rest will be paid out in two different types of things, a stabilization payment and an earnout. Usually the stabilization payment is paid out over the course of a year and the earnout would be paid out over the course of the year as well. The earnout will represent a portion of that deal, just like the stabilization payment will. And the earnout will have certain terms, like your business needs to do X 
for me to pay you. Usually it's going to be tied to things like revenue or net profit, things, things along those nature, but not always. There are other ways of doing it where the earnout could be tied to certain kind of uh, uh, project milestones, like launching a new product, you staying on board with the company might also be it. If you're in like, say a high seven figures or low eight figures, that's something we have seen before. Uh, but that, that would be like the general mix. Like your, your, your expectation should be getting around eight, like 80% or so of the list price upfront and have that expectation of the stabilization payment and earn out afterwards, which most sellers don't like because the most ideal possible scenario for sellers, like give me all cash right now. Right. So yeah, like you got to be careful uh, of like going in with that expectation because most likely won't happen if you're a bigger business. What is stabilization payment? Yeah. So stabilization payment is just a fancy word for basically seller financing in a lot of ways, like in a layman's terms. So like maybe on that $2 million deal, say they have, uh, you know, 200,000 or a hundred thousand dollars they're going to pay out to you just as they stabilize the business. Like as long as the business remains uh, stable, hence the stabilization as when they bought it, they will pay you that uh, remaining money. So the earnout is different that the business needs to grow in order for you to get that pay. Yeah, I see. <laughs> so if I'm if I'm selling for two million, my ideal situation is get eighty percent of that. So that's one point six million. I get that cash when we sign the papers, and then uh, uh, the remaining four hundred thousand dollars is paid on monthly basis, starting from a particular date. Is that is that the way it works? So it depends on the deal. Uh, monthly happens if it's below seven figures, usually. You, like Often that is the case. Uh, when, once you get above seven figures, it's usually going to be paid out quarterly or every six months or one, or at the end of the year, depending on I the see. setup. And that all comes down to the negotiations. Okay. And that st stabilization is actually defined what it means because it may mean different things to different people, right? It could, yeah. <laughs> so that's another good thing to like define your terms when it comes to whether you use a broker or not. Like a broker obviously is going to help you make sure that everyone's speaking the same language here. But if you're working in a more private market, like, uh, and you're not working with, say, with someone who is experienced with M&A, they might have heard that term and they're just throwing it around and they have, you know, they're not, they have a totally different definition of what that means. But yeah. in general, what stabilization means is your business stays roughly the same as they're as they own the asset right the business is stable and they are integrating the buyer is integrating it into their company into their processes all that kind of stuff so in the case of above seven figure valuations you mentioned that they may keep you on board so if you stay on during that integration you get <laughs> you get compensated for it so it, it can work that way. There are several different ways I've seen it play out. I've seen it uh, where sellers get a base, like just a flat salary to stay on board, to stay committed. Uh, I've seen sometimes sellers don't get really much of anything, but usually in that case, they're more of a, in a support function. So it's not like they're working 20, 40 hours a week on the business still. Usually uh, they're not getting paid anything. It's more like, hey, we'll, you know, we'll call you if we need you, but we want you to be around for this next year. And they might call you like once every other two months if like, Hey, what like what was this you know or something like that they want to make sure that you're you're on the hook a little bit to help them integrate it into their systems right uh there are other methods too so some uh some buyers they actually use this to their advantage when they negotiate with sellers it's like it, when you sell a business accepting a stabilization payment or earnout is usually like you don't feel great about it typically because you want like all the money right so sometimes what the buyers will do is they'll negotiate a bigger earnout where you also have some equity still in the business. So usually it's a very small bit, like five, 10%, sometimes even less, uh, depending on the deal. So you can, you know, in, in perpetuity collect the reward of the upside of that business. Right. So there's multiple different ways that it can happen. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the, these are all very intricate details of how a deal is crafted and what works for everybody. And, and so it does help to have a professional, so there are, so obviously, this is what you do. So you're the broker, so you have the marketplace, and then you bring people together. There are also consultants, M&A consultants. Um, are they different than you guys, or how, how, how do they work? If you, are, if you are handling an acquisition, 
how would you work with a consultant also that represent the seller? Sure. So that would be a bit of a blurry situation. So typically on the seller side, if it's if they have an M and A consultant, that would be kind of more like our competitor versus us working together. So if a seller comes to us, we handle everything. Now something that can happen is having a an M and A consultant on the buy side. So our sales side, uh, our our salespeople, our analysts, our M and A advisors, they might be working with that M and A consultant on the buy side. In fact, that's actually kind of common in, in, in a certain perspective with seven figure and up uh, businesses, because a lot of the people buying seven, eight figure businesses, they'll have inside of their own company, a department just dedicated to M&A. So they would basically have their own dedicated M&A consultant on their payroll. And that would be the main person helping us come up with the deal that works for all parties, right? So in the, we work with the buy side of an M&A a lot more than say a sell side. It, I'm not saying a sell side couldn't work. Uh, with us, but it's not something that's very common at all. Usually the ideal setup there would be, uh, you know, say uh, the sell side M&A consultant, maybe they did exit planning with their seller. And then they said, look, you should go to EF uh, because they have, you know, the $6 billion buyer network over here. I know they're going to treat you well and all that kind of stuff. And then we work out a referral agreement. But once that uh, uh, deal is taken over to us, we handle everything from there typically. Okay. So, um, as far as so you represent the seller, uh, right? That's that's your role. Yeah. So our, our fiduciary responsibilities to the seller, and obviously we want the seller to get the best possible price. Um, now, with that said, buyers are a repeat customer. So they because a seller once you sell a business, like it's usually going to take you like two three years to build a new business to sell. Uh, there's certain things you can do to speed that up, which I'm happy to talk about. But that's the typical. You usually just don't have another business ready to sell like right away after you get done with the first yeah. one. Um, but buyers tend to buy businesses multiple times throughout the year. So at the end of the day, we want it to be a win-win-win, right? The seller wins with a meaningful, awesome exit. The buyer wins getting an awesome, high-quality business. And we win from making that transaction happening. Yeah. Okay. And you get paid by the seller. Yeah, we get paid by the seller. So uh, one, one of the things, I don't know if other brokers do this, I know we do it, but in that earnout civilization uh, uh, stuff we were talking about, like we don't get paid on the full $2 million. So we would get paid on the upfront, so that like 1.6 million. And as the payments for the remainder $400,000 comes in, that's also how we would get paid. So we're right in it with the seller, like our incentives are all completely aligned. And we actually manage those uh, deal structures on behalf of the sellers. So they don't have to worry about it. Okay, cool. So let's talk a little bit about two things. First of all, you've got two types of sellers. You've got private label sellers and you've got mm -hmm. basically resellers, uh, you know, just buy and sell. Which ones are more popular? For and the uh, buying and selling aspect, yeah. private label for sure. Yeah, uh, you can sell reseller uh, businesses. It's just the buyer pool is much smaller. Uh, if your plan is to sell, uh, sell an asset, and right now, let, let's say you're in your audience, you're a reseller, I would recommend looking to use your Amazon knowledge to start your own private label brand because it will be much easier to exit that business. Yeah, because I was talking to somebody yesterday, and she she has a brand of her own and. She currently does B2B, all wholesale, not online, just doing, you know, commercial mm. wholesale business. Awesome. And she was looking to be, get on Amazon and she was asking, you know, can I, can I just, uh, instead of creating my own brand on Amazon, can I just go to Alibaba and uh, buy some, you know, cut deals, buy wholesale? And I said, I wouldn't waste my time or money with that kind of enterprise <laughs> yeah. because you build no value. The, the, uh, so like th if this isn't a hint for your audience on this, like what you just said, Alibaba, if we find out that people are sourcing from like Alibaba or AliExpress and even Alibaba, sometimes we just say no, like we won't do it because like there's so many low quality uh, products that come out of that kind of sourcing that a lot of our buyers are just not interested. So yeah, I, I agree with what you told, told her, you told your friend. I think that's the right approach. I would much rather build my own private label brand than a reseller yeah. business. So a private label is it. So 
Let's talk about, I know it's different for every product category, but uh, give us some ideas, uh, at least as a range. What are the valuations and what is the valuation based on? Sure. So uh, I should have pulled this up before this meeting. I'll uh, pull up my little uh, industry report. So we've been working on this thing that looks at all of the Amazon FBA businesses we've sold in real time. So I'll give you the actual up-to-date because it updates in uh, real time uh, multiple. But to answer the other part of the question, why that loads, um, in terms of what makes up evaluation, it's mostly a pretty simple formula. So there's two types of formulas the seller's looking at, SDE and EBITDA. So SDE is seller discretionary earnings. EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, and uh, depreciation and amortization. I, I, I say it so often, but I always mess it up. Yeah. Uh, but I, the, the big thing, like those might sound like fancy words, but they're very similar to each other. And like as a seller, I wouldn't worry about the differences because they're negligible for most sellers. Like they don't really come into play. But um, so you look at your last 12 months. You, what, what is your average net profit over that last 12 months? And then you would times that against the multiple. So uh, in that multiple, there's multiple different things that go into making that up, like traffic diversity, product diversity, uh, you know, uh, different uh, uh, shipping, logistics, like how, like you have special deals with your suppliers, your 3PL, all this kind of stuff, right? So if you combine those and do that simple formula of here's my average net profit times the multiple, that's my valuation. So in this case, for uh, FBA businesses, <clears throat> the average sales uh, multiple right now is 41, or I'm uh, sorry, 43.1x. Now that's monthly. So some people uh, who are familiar with the MA space, they understand people use uh, annual EBITDA. We use monthly EBITDA. So just divide that 43 by 12, and you'll have the, uh, the, the like how the, most of the industry talks about it. So you take that average net profit, you times it against that 43. There's your valuation, right? On average, uh, obviously, there's going to be differences for every business. So, if you make a hundred thousand dollars a month net, hundred thousand times forty-three is what you are valued as. Yeah. Yep. Uh, obviously, you have to go through the valuation process because not every business is going to be forty-three x, forty-three yeah. monthly x, right? Um, but that's the average right now of the sales price, not the list price, and. That's probably something we might want to talk about because so some brokers they'll uh, tell you like oh I can get you way bigger way a way bigger multiple than that like much bigger uh, and what they mean is they can get you listed at much bigger than that but once you're actually listed with them you often have this like six month uh, exclusivity with that broker and then they'll just start beating you down to reality like okay let's you know, let's go de like, you know, discount this a little bit more close to what buyers want, yeah. uh, which we don't do. We are very against that. We try to be very transparent up front before you sign anything with us. It's like selling or buying a house, right? It's the list price and then what the deal ends up being. Yeah, that's what it really sells for, right? I see. So that, <laughs> that, that's very useful. So uh, what contributes to that multiple is... Give us, walk us through what are some real high value drivers that give you that highest multiple? Sure. So traffic diversity, I say is a big one. Uh, so a lot of people, they focus on, you know, mono-channel marketing, which is fine. I mean, you can still sell your business like that, but if you want to maximize your earnings, you should have multiple different marketing channels that are making a meaningful impact on your business. So uh, for example, you might be killing it with uh, Amazon Organic, so the SEO on Amazon's actual marketplace. And you might be crushing it with Amazon PPC ads as well as your Facebook ads. Now, if you are, and like each one of those should make up, a, you know, somewhat significant. Like if it's like two, 5% of your revenue, it's not really going to impact anything. But say if the spread is like, you know, 20%, uh, 40%, and another 40%, whatever, right? Then that's going to have a meaningful impact to your valuation. And the reason why. And this is a, a very important framework in general without valuations work is most people, when they think about valuations, they're always thinking about growth. And while growth can help your valuations, a lot of times a valuation is based on risk, not on growth. So the more you can de-risk your business, the more premium your valuation tends to be. So in this example, I have three different marketing channels. If I lose my Facebook ad account next week, I'm okay because like 80% of my business doesn't rely on Facebook. 
versus let's say I was really bad at Amazon PVC and I was nowhere to be found on Amazon's organic and I had a hundred percent of all my traffic going through Facebook ads and then my Facebook ad account gets deleted or whatever, like I might not have a business in a few weeks, right? <laughs> like, cause there's like no one coming here anymore. So that's one aspect. Uh, another aspect would be revenue diversity. So very similar concept as traffic, only this time it's how many SKUs do you have? And this, like, you don't want to have just one SKU. Now you can sell a seven figure business as one product. We've done it before, but it's just harder because you're basically asking that buyer, like, let me put all my cards on this one product and hope it's not a fad, doesn't go out of style, all this other stuff, right? So it's better to have multiple products. Uh, and when I say that, I, you, you're, I hope your audience doesn't go out there like, let me go source like 500 new products. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Don't do that either. Because there's a, a happy medium here. So usually the sweet spot is going to be between three and 10 products, somewhere around there. Um, obviously the bigger your valuation, the more products you can, uh, you know, justify why you have, but usually three to eight is a good number because it diversifies that revenue and it shows the seller that you, uh, or the buyer rather that your processes are repeatable because assuming you launched each of these products in the same way. Right. So that's another aspect. And one thing, uh, uh, that I will also mention is email. I think that's a real sleeper topic in the FBA community. One, it's just really hard to build an email list as an Amazon FBA entrepreneur versus other business models. But I think that is probably the one of the most important things you can do to increase your valuation if you know if you understand how to effectively build and use an email list to nurture an audience. Because like that is traffic diversity. It's uh, it could be revenue diversity because you can always pivot with, with that email with off Amazon stuff, right? Like say launching a Shopify store or even a digital product using the email list and the email list, uh, it, like it's traffic diversity in that you have the actual email, but you can actually use the first party data that you now have collected for say Facebook ads or TikTok ads for retargeting all sorts of stuff. So these are the kind of things we would be looking at in evaluation. Uh, that's just touching the surface, but those are two of the big ones. Yeah. Uh, this is this is actually this fits really well into the new incentive program that Amazon introduced for driving external traffic because they give you money back, right? So they reduce their uh, fee if you're driving external traffic. Mm, so, yes, hey. yes, uh, that, so, uh, that that is true. Uh, <laughs> so external traffic very very important with Amazon. Yeah, I, I, I had a, another guest a few episodes ago. He was the vice president of an agency, the full service agency that worked with sellers. And what he was telling me was, since Amazon introduced this new program, where if you are advertising externally and then driving traffic to your, your Amazon listings, they give you, I think, 15%. They give you... Wow. They give Didn't you back. that high. Yeah, and it, but what he was telling me that they discovered was driving external traffic. Actually, the way they tweak their algorithms, it favors you in organic listings. Yeah, because generally you find the keywords and then you're bidding on the keywords through Amazon sponsored ads, and that's how you're driving your traffic primarily. And that means that somebody has to search that keyword and then click on your listing and blah, blah, blah. So all those things are necessary in order for you to rank for a keyword. However, if you're driving external traffic directly to the listing, there is no search. There is no nothing. There's no keyword assignment to that particular traffic. And uh, as yet, apparently Amazon has figured out a way for you to to, to favor your listings in organic searches. Yeah, I, I've heard of this multiple times. Uh, there, th this is an uh, interesting ninja tip. I've, I've said it to multiple FBA friends of mine and they've used it. I've never really have heard anyone else say this, but so my, my background is content marketing and SEO, like Google SEO. Uh, in fact, that's how I drive the majority of our leads and traffic for EF is through that. Uh, so one of the quick tips, like for uh, all your FBA audience out there, if they want to get that like Google SEO juice uh, coming to their external or coming to their marketplace page is go to Google and like, let's say you're selling blenders, something like that. Go to Google, type in 
best blenders, best blenders reviews, top blenders, stuff like that. The first page of Google will most likely be all affiliate sites. And most of them are going to be monetizing using the Amazon Associates program. So you can reach out to all these site owners like, hey, I want you to put my blender on this top 10 list of yours. And now you're suddenly getting all this SEO traffic coming to uh, Amazon. You can even stretch it out further with like having them do an individual write-up review of your blender and all the other uh, reviews that they have ranking. Because usually they'll do an individual review as well of all the different products that are ranking on Google. Have them put a dynamic, uh, or not dynamic, but just a CTA button like, hey, read our review of the best blender, which leads to the review they wrote about yours. And now you get all the benefit of this SEO traffic without having to do the hard work of the actual <laughs> SEO, right? Um, the cool thing about that is because of what you just said, uh, Amazon wanting to rank people more for external traffic, SEO tends to be the highest intent, like commercial intent to go and buy something because it's at the bottom of a buyer funnel. So SEO tends to work the best, actually, if you get that type of traffic coming to your Amazon listing. Yeah. Because they buy the most. So this is another way to really increase your valuation. So this is very useful. So, I mean, this is an extremely valuable piece of information because I was thinking, you know, when you're building a business, what are the things that are the highest value? And obviously, a system-driven operation that is not person-dependent and you have a, a mature team. And those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking but what you mentioned is totally different and they, they give you the highest return. So great. Uh, those are all important what you just mentioned too. Don't get yourself wrong. Those, those oh, are yeah. important too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so great. So tell me a little bit about uh, yourself. I mean, how did this start? So, I mean, obviously, you know, you, I introduced you as a creative person at heart and, you know, when you and I talked earlier, it was about writing and, uh, we even mentioned Breaking Bad and then how it started. So, uh, so that's the kind of writing that that you you were doing. But you've been talking numbers and traffic, and so tell us um, how do you go from oil fields in Alaska to what you're doing? So give us that story. Uh, sure. So. You know, I, I used to be actually drilling for oil. So I'd be in the Darth Vader suit covered in like rubber and stuff because there was these chemicals that we would use that if it got into your skin, like the whole point of the chemical was that it eats organic matter. So it could like just drill into your flesh. And the reason why we had this to eat organic matter is because like the, the other chemicals that we were used would create these bugs that would create H2S gas. It smells like rotten eggs. And if you, you breathe too much of it, you just die like, and if there's too much of it, you can't smell it at all. So it becomes this invisible danger on our oil rig. So that was one part of my job on an oil rig. And I hated it. I hated every aspect of it. I'm not, uh, I, I wanted to do something what I thought was more. And in my mind, like I've always identified as a bit of a, of an artist, which sounds you know weird woo -woo or whatever, but I view marketing as a form of art. And I knew that there was this a whole other life out there, right? Like a lot of FBA entrepreneurs in your audience probably resonates with them when they first started their FBA business. For a lot of them, it was their side hustle that they did on top of a job that they probably didn't like. And so they self-taught themselves how to do this, how to change their life through their business. And now they're a successful entrepreneur. They're free, right? And this is where the emotional equity thing I mentioned earlier comes into play, right? Because it changed their life. So I changed my life by learning internet marketing. So I'd work my 12, 18 hours a day. Uh, you know, on the oil rig, you're working seven days. If you have a day off, that means you got fired or you quit. <laughs> so, like you're always working. Uh, so I, I do my my tower is what we call it the shifts, the tower. And I would start freelance writing on the side. And I eventually built up this huge portfolio. And I was writing for uh, uh, a bunch of SEO agencies. <clears throat> so I got into SEO from that. Uh, I still remember one of my clients. He had me write all these plumbing articles in Ohio, like you know how to fix the XYZ pipe in Columbus, Ohio, stuff like that. Right. And, uh, he found out I was still on the oil rigs, which he was shocked by. Cause like, I was one of the only writers that had, like stayed with him. And I knew that I, like, I could make this freelance stuff work. Cause SEOs always need content and they absolutely hate writing it. And hiring a writer is very similar to trying to herd cats. Like creative people were just like all over the place. Right. So <laughs> like, because I was consistent and I was cheap cause I undercutted everyone. Uh, I was writing for like one cent per word, basically, to doing this, which is 
very, very low. And uh, he was like, man, if I was you, I'd be so burnt out. I had no idea you were doing all this. Like, man, I've been burnt out for years. That doesn't mean you don't have to pay your bills. Like, you still got to go on, right? Like, so uh, that's how it all kind of started. I built up this portfolio, got bigger, bigger clients. And I got to this like um, stoic, stoic position in my life where it's like, I got some confidence back. Because I tried to make other online businesses work in the past. But when you're working so much on, on a, you know, in the Arctic circle, you don't, without the best internet connection, it's sometimes very hard to get anything going. Right. Uh, and, uh, so I, I decided, you know what, I'm going to build my own site. If it, you know, I don't care if it, if it kills me to make it happen. Right. So I started doing that and I, I knew about EF cause I was obsessed with internet marketing. I was obsessed with this whole other life that I knew I could be living. And so of course I knew all the players. Right. And so I saw the, this email that went out. Like, hey, we're looking for a content marketing pro from uh, Empire Flippers. I was like, ah, there's a job I'll never get, and I'm going to apply for it. <laughs> Just with the same, like, with like gusto, right? So I even were, you were actually working. So many. Still, you were still working in oil field when you applied for this job. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So six years ago, I was still in the oil field. Now, six years ago, I wasn't on an actual rig anymore. I I'd actually gotten the like quote unquote the best job I ever had in the oil field which was also the lowest paying job I ever had in the oil field, which was uh, me sitting in this blacked out window office for 12 to 14 hours a day, measuring the weather on the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds interesting, right? Measuring the weather on the sun, but it was the absolute most boring thing in the entire world. It's just like copy and paste. Uh, like our joke was, uh, my coworkers, our joke was like, all we do is hit control C, control V, control C, control V. It's all these different spreadsheets that we're sending to rigs around the world, you know? Uh, so I actually had my best boss I ever had in the oil field. Like, as you might imagine, a lot of tough souls are bosses in the, uh, in the, oil, in the oil world. And uh, when I got this offer at EF, so I almost didn't take it. Um, I like, I, you know, I, I like, it, I felt like if I was, if I take it and I prove to myself I'm a failure at marketing now, like legitimately in the employee, employee world, then like I'm going to be back on an oil rig and I just got the best like office job for what I could do without a degree. So uh, it was uh, a big leap of faith to take it. So yeah, I was doing all the freelance writing stuff on the side but for years one, uh, before you have. How does one make a decision to go from being able to pay the bills, not necessarily enjoyable, but safe enough so that you don't have to worry about things to a complete unknown in a totally different field. How do you go from <laughs> one to the other? How, what does that feel like? Uh, it, well, there was definitely a lot of pressure, right? But at the end of the day, like the thing about me is I, I'm an adventurer at heart. So uh, I, I've been, uh, <laughs> I was homeless once while making six figures in the oil field because I was in North Dakota and it was at the, the height of the boom. And there was literally no hotel. So I lived in the hotel lobby and then I convinced the receptionist to let me live in his trailer for a few days. And then the mayor, I convinced him, let me live in your suburban for a few days. <laughs> so I like, finally I found a place I could actually live in. So I was like legitimately homeless. So I'm gonna sleep on like the Walmart uh, parking bench while like going on to the rig. Uh, so like I'm an adventurer at heart. So for me, there's more danger in not making the leap than, uh, than making the leap. Because at the end of the day, there's like in most leaps of faith, like it's not the end of the world if you fail. In fact, it's often the start of all of your miraculous success. Like I learned almost everything in my life by failing. And so if I never took the leap, I could never fail. And I, then I could never succeed at what I wanted to do. It's kind of the way I look at things. So that would be my advice. Don't be afraid of the failure. Kind of like embrace, embrace the possibility. And it just know it won't be that bad if you do fail. Yeah, actually, you know, I read a quote the other day. Uh, it was about failure, but not necessarily just failing at something, but much bigger. It was, uh, it said something like, uh, heroes are created during the times of great defeats, which means that victory is a series of glorious defeats. <laughs> it's so true yes yeah. uh i tell i tell every person that joins my marketing team like you got to be comfortable with failing because like 80 percent of marketing is failing like every amazon pvc campaign i'm sure your audience resonates with this 
probably lost money until you optimized it, right? Until you reiterate it over and over and over again. So failure is just part of the the cost of success. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so when you, so what was that like? So give us the experience also that, that you had when you made that leap of faith. So now, you know, it's one thing to kind of contemplate and then finally make the decision. So now what? Now you made the decision, your day one is the complete unknown. So give us what is that like? And then how do you deal with that situation? Sure. So I, uh, I bought a one-way ticket to Vietnam. I told my boss in the oil field, uh, and he was like, he was so happy for me because he knew I loved marketing and I really wanted to get into it. And then I told him where I was going. He's like, ah, Greg, are you sure this is real? <laughs> so I was like, I don't know. I'll find out. And uh, I went to Vietnam and uh, got here. And like, uh, it was it was interesting, man, because like my founder, he... Uh, he was like, well, what are we going to do with you? I like, I don't know. Like, what are you going to do? Right? So he like, he gave me a little bit of like insight into what I should be doing, but really it was like a lot left up to me to figure it out. And I, I think probably anyone who's worked at a startup has probably had that feeling at some time. Like the founder knows, like, I really need this person. Then they get them and they're like, I don't know what to tell you to do. Do you know what to do? <laughs> like, let me figure it out. You know, and so we just went from there. Uh, I was originally uh, writing blog posts and then uh, went from blog posts up to where I am now uh, as head of marketing. So now I do all the SEO, every channel. But I think the most important thing, if you're going to make a leap, like say, say someone in your audience right now is working like a comfy nine to five and they have a, an Amazon FBA business humming along and they're thinking like, God, I really want to quit this commute, but I'm afraid what will happen when I leave. Like, if you're going to make the leap of faith, like, first of all, save up money. <laughs> Don't do what I do and just like go off on an adventure. Save up money, have a runway, do it safely. But once you're ready to make the leap, which you'll never feel fully ready, but once you have have had enough, go full in, go like hard. So when I started at EF, you know, I often was working still 12, 14 hours a day. In fact, I told uh, my founders in my video, it's on their uh, job description and said like, this isn't a gap year. This isn't, uh, you know, like summer vacation. Like sometimes you're going to have to work like 12, 18 hours a day. Or they said, I think it was like 12 hours a day, something like that. And uh, I, in my video, I said like, I love the fact I only have to work 12 hours a day. So right now I'm working like 18 to 20. So this means I get so much time back. I can't wait to work 12 hours a day. This is going to be awesome, right? So uh, like, but once you're in it, once you make the leap, like really commit, go hard at it, do your absolute best. And even if you fail, uh, you're going to feel like you're going to feel like you really took your shot. And I think that's important. I think a lot of people get too paralyzed by fear to take their shots. Yeah, I actually had a question asked. And this this is something I discovered myself all through my own life experience where, you know, you, you often, you know, you start something, you take a leap of faith, you have an idea, you have a vision and you start it. And, and you know how it is. It's tough. And things don't work, and you struggle. You're struggling emotionally. You're struggling financially, and you. The question is always on the table. Okay, how much more do I have to put into this before I say enough is enough? Mm-hmm. So when is the time to say that's it? I'm done. Yeah, so, this is this is a, that's a relevant question for me, man. Right, go f- f- finish your thought. Yeah. So I discovered the answer. You want to know the answer? What's the answer? That is not the question to ask at the time you are asking. <laughs> because what you do is, so you said something, save up a little bit, and then when you go in, go in hard. So what I say is one more thing. Make sure whatever you are going in for, you believe in it totally. And you, you say to yourself, this is going to be successful. Because whatever you believe in will become reality. So absolutely, you go in with that mindset. So when you go in with that mindset, that question either never comes up, but when it does come up, the answer is simple. Never, never. You borrow, you rob, you steal, just to keep going. (laughs) 
to keep going because <laughs> victory could be just around the corner and, uh, and you just never give up whatever you started now you may end up doing a different version of what you started but that's where the failure learning from failure comes in so but whatever the vision is original vision is there is no failure there is no as you say there is no quitting there is no enough it's never enough you just keep going so when yeah. you have that mindset <clears throat> that question comes up you know it, when it first time it comes up you remind yourself no that's not an option the second time the third time and the fourth time you just push it aside say, okay what am i doing now to keep going <laughs> <laughs> so, you remind me uh with, with that uh with my story right like uh, I worked in a place I absolutely hated for a decade trying to make this whole internet marketing thing work now. And I, I have a lot of friends, they look at my success and stuff now and they like, wow, you became like Mr. Zuckerberg. I see you speaking on stages around the world or whatever. Like I was just in affiliate world, Dubai, speaking in front of like a thousand people, you know, uh, but it took me 10 years of night. Like it was a long night to get to the day, right? It's not like there's a, you're going to have so much of that feelings. And like, I think what really helped me make it hard pivot after all my failures during that decade of night was me just approaching everything with a carpenter's mindset. So if, if you're, if your audience has ever read the book, uh, on writing by Stephen King, uh, he talks about like writing fiction, which I'm a, I, I write fiction for fun as you and I were talking about Nick and, uh, like, I love that book because he instills the mindset, don't approach writing as when the muse hits you, approach it like a carpenter who needs to show up and hit the wood, whether he's hung over or not, <laughs> like, you know, you need, you need to go in and do the work. Right. Um, so like that's that kind of mentality when I stopped giving up in, or when I gave up a little bit on the more fantastical elements of, you know, my dream, I just focused on the fundamentals of what makes that dream possible. And I show, started showing up every day is when things started to change for me. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, so Greg, tell us about uh, where you live and how people can reach you. We will obviously put your contact information on our website when the episode is published, as well as on YouTube. But uh, give it to us now so that we, we also have it on record. Sure. So uh, my email is just greg at empireflippers.com. You can check out empireflippers.com as well if you want to check out the brokerage. Happy to help. Uh, you can also connect with me on LinkedIn and Facebook. My URLs for that is just Greg the Writer for obvious reasons. That's how I started this whole crazy uh, journey. Uh, and I'm always happy to help. You know, if your audience has a question about buying or selling, whether they want to use us or not, happy to do it. Or just random questions about marketing or just want to say hello, always happy to uh, help however I can. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. This is, uh, this is great. You know, you're a hell of a guy, you know, you go from world fields <laughs> to writing and yeah, you, you're creating millionaires and you're a philosopher also. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's great. So uh, thank you very much. And uh, thank you everybody. And this is the end of another episode and I'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.